0: I'm Mary Parker, and welcome to this episode of Eureka's Sounds of Science. Today we are discussing the horseshoe crab fossil record. These creatures have existed in some form for millions of years and their record reflects enormous climactic and geological changes in Earth's history. I am joined today by James Lamsdell, Assistant Professor of Paleobiology in the Department of Geology and Geography at West Virginia University. Welcome James. Thank you for having me. <laughs> Thank you for being here. So let's get this out of the way first. Uh, Horseshoe crabs are one of the species that are popularly known as living fossils, but you say this term can be misleading.
1: Yes. um, Obviously, when we talk about living fossils, we tend to think about something that's been around for um, really long periods of time, sort of not changing at all. With horseshoe crabs, and in fact, with a lot of living fossils, when you really start to get into their fossil record, it doesn't really hold up. There are four species that we have today. We have Limulus polyphemus in the US, which most of us are most familiar with, and then there are three species in Asia. But none of these species actually have a fossil record.
0: Like at all?
1: Uh, at all. The, um, the, the groups that they belong to, the genera, Limulus and Tachypleus, um, they do have a fossil record. There are other species that we assign to these groups that we find um, in the rock record. Uh, but the modern species, we have no record of at all.
0: It also can be misleading to call them living fossils because I guess it gives a false sense of security to people about how safe they are.
1: Yes, exactly. Uh, it's something that I've, I've done a bit of reading about, actually, because I'm very interested in what we can use the fossil record for in terms of modern conservation efforts. Uh, and the concept that horseshoe crabs are going to be very robust to change is something that is talked about an awful lot, but very rarely written down. It's kind of uh, assumed in the background. And so I've always been very interested in kind of debunking the idea that we should be unconcerned about these animals. As we know from the conservation work that's been being done, largely actually on red knots, which use the eggs as a food source, uh, horseshoe crabs are actually in trouble now. And if we don't recognize that and realize that um, they're not just going to carry on as usual and be fine with whatever happens, we do risk the, the chance of losing them.
0: And speaking of horseshoe crabs staying the same forever, that's also untrue. I, I understand some of your own research deals with them migrating to more brackish and non-marine environments, which is surprising for some people to hear.
1: Yes, it's it was a very interesting uh, result when we started to look at it, um, mainly because horseshoe crabs, because they, in the modern art, mostly marine they obviously can spend time a little time on land when they're laying their eggs and also go into sort of these brackish entrances to rivers especially some of the asian species um it's sort of assumed that if you find a horseshoe crab in the fossil record you're looking at the marine realm uh and that sort of led to a bit of circular evidence where uh, people were saying, well, horseshoe crabs are from the sea. So if you find a horseshoe crab, that means we're looking at a, a, a marine environment. Uh, ergo, horseshoe crabs have always lived in the sea and they've never changed what they're doing. Uh, but some of these horseshoe crabs have been found in just outright river systems. Uh, and it's very difficult to explain, especially given the chance of something actually being fossilized. If you've got a fossil of something, there's a good chance that more than just one of those things were around in that environment. It's difficult to explain odd ones getting there by chance, and so some of these things were actually living in rivers, and then Uh, especially in this period of time called the Carboniferous, we have these um, coal forests uh, where we have these big swampy sort of lagoon areas with lots of ferns, uh, large ferns that are attempting to be trees growing. There's occasional bits of um, connections to the sea. So these are slightly brackish, but they're definitely not fully marine. And some of these are very definitely fresh water. And we have this entire group of horseshoe crabs that colonize this environment and make it their own. And in fact, they're some of the most diverse groups of horseshoe crabs that we have in the fossil record.
0: Oh, that's amazing. So, speaking of horseshoe crabs in terms of the very general horseshoe crab shaped fossils that you see in the record, how long have they been around?
1: So, horseshoe crabs have been around uh, an incredibly long time. The oldest records we have are from uh, a period of time called the Ordovician, and this is 450 million years ago. Uh, and they're very rare we only have um, one described species we're aware of um, two or three more that are are awaiting description and these horseshoe crabs for all intents and purposes would look a lot like the modern horseshoe crab with a couple of exceptions first of all they're very very small Uh, none of them get bigger than about two or three centimeters uh, which is ridiculously small when you look at the gigantic uh, limulus that you sometimes get where you can't even pick the females up very easily because they're so heavy Uh, and uh, they also haven't quite fused up the body fully so modern horseshoe crabs have this thoracotron and all the segments are completely fused so they look like little walking tanks but in the past, uh, they're evolved from um, relatives of uh, modern arachnids and, and other arthropods like that. Uh, and so their bodies are, st- are still segmented. And so these early horseshoe crabs, while the body is more or less fused up, you can still see remnants of the segments.
0: So they went from being flexible Cirque types to tank-like bodybuilders? <laughs>
1: Uh, yes, uh, then in the process, uh, managed to evolve so that they very easily get flipped over onto their backs and then just wiggle around.
0: Yeah, that's a problem. <laughs> so what does the horseshoe crab record say about the bigger picture of climate change and geographical change over 450 million years?
1: It's an interesting um, sort of lens to view uh, this sort of thing from because horseshoe crabs have always had a very low diversity. There are very rarely more than Two or three species that we know of around at once, Uh, with the exception of uh, the group that move into these coal swamps. Basically, what you can do is you can use the horseshoe crabs to sort of see um, how these sort of marine environments were were changing. And we know that these things managed to survive uh, a number of mass extinctions and you can kind of see them exploring different environments when the marine realm seems to get stressed and that's what these these uh, coal swamp forms are doing.
0: So as a species that doesn't change very much overall, is it something like the number of them you find in various layers of sediment that might give you a clue to what climate change was going on at the time?
1: So there are a couple of things we can do, and and one of the things we have to bear in mind when we're looking at this stuff is the sort of biases you get in the fossil record. Um, The fossil record is a surprisingly good uh, history of life on Earth, but there are certain things that it is sort of biased towards and a couple of things it's biased against. And horseshoe crabs kind of sit on this weird middle ground of living in environments where you're going to get generally very good preservation, but their exoskeleton is not particularly hard, it's very thick, and uh, if anybody that's ever tried to work with one knows just how robust and heavy these things are. But unlike crabs and some extinct arthropod groups like trilobites, they are not putting calcium carbonate into their uh, exoskeleton, and so they sort of are less likely to be preserved in the fossil record. And so when you do get accumulations of individuals in one environment, it's often because you're capturing some aspect of their behavior or because um, something unusual happened. Say there was this uh, sudden influx of mud and it just sort of covered them all. So you can use abundance to look at what's going on in local environments. But in terms of seeing sort of the bigger global picture, what you tend to want to look at is um, species diversity and sort of the environments that they are occupying and how they are changing sort of where they're living in response to either new opportunities opening up or having to just ad- adapt to a degree in order to survive the changes that are going on. The horseshoe crabs are kind of unique in, in passing through every single major mass extinction event in Earth's history.
0: Speaking of the mass extinctions, what do these look like in the fossil records? Or is it just a point in history where there are almost no fossils or just a couple of species then can we talk about how horseshoe crabs might have survived those
1: so the there are five major mass extinctions the the first one is at the end of the ordovician um just after horseshoe crabs first evolved uh, or at least when we first see them in the fossil record Um, And each mass extinction has a different cause, and so the way it looks in the fossil record uh, tends to be um, a bit different. Uh, But while they are sort of what we term geologically instantaneous, so they're often a very thin horizon um, in the rock record, uh, these are periods of time where there was often some sort of climatic stress factor that existed, that persisted for thousands of years. Uh, and so what you'll often see is a sort of winnowing of, of species leading up to this event. Um, or in the case of the end Cretaceous, where we know that it was a very sudden, instantaneous event, more or less, where there was maybe some um, stressing going on because of the eruption of volcanoes, and then this big asteroid hit, it tends to be a lot more truncated, and things tend to um, go extinct rather more suddenly. Uh, but what we'll often find is that... Um, the diversity of life um, will decrease. There will be a drop in the total number of species, but as well we'll see ecosystems begin to destabilize and collapse, and they often become very truncated. We tend to find that things get a lot more squished down so that there are fewer trophic levels after these mass extinction events, and often, um, rather than multiple things filling each trophic level, we'll only have a, a few species.
0: Mm-hmm. you maybe only have one or two predators feeding on one or two species who are eating one or two bottom dwellers and so forth?
1: Yes, you'll get that kind of thing going on. Um, And then afterwards, when we see this sort of recovery, we'll get a bunch of the same thing just everywhere. And so you'll lose this global diversity and then it'll slowly recover over time. And that recovery can take millions of years.
0: So what are some of the factors that allowed horseshoe crabs to survive these mass extinctions?
1: Well, it sort of depends on the mass extinction you're looking at. By and large, it seems to be that they are... um, oddly globally distributed in fact the modern distribution of horseshoe crabs is very odd in terms of their um, evolutionary history Um, we have horseshoe crabs in the fossil record um, from north america they've got a very good fossil record in europe Um, there are horseshoe crabs up in russia in the jurassic um, and there's also horseshoe crab trackways found in antarctica uh, and so we know that horseshoe crabs have this global distribution. Um, and the re- one of the reasons why horseshoe crabs are so useful for looking at in the fossil record is that we can study the ones today and look at things like the um, genetic structure of populations, which is something we just cannot get from the fossil record. And so we know that modern horseshoe crab populations um, tend to be very specialized to the particular environment that they are in. Uh, And so while horseshoe crabs are generally considered to be sort of generalists and able to live anywhere, uh, if you moved a horseshoe crab from one area and put it in another, it would not do as well in that bay, say, than the horseshoe crabs that are already living there because they are much more used to that specific environment.
0: Mm -hmm. Very specialized.
1: Yeah. And so with horseshoe crabs having a global distribution, what is thought that they are doing is they're not particularly resistant to extinction but because there are many populations uh, there is a good chance that at least one or two of them will be in a situation where they are sort of more suited to whatever the change that's happening is and then after the recovery it is those that radiate out
0: Besides direct human contact, what are some of the other threats against horseshoe crabs?
1: Uh, So the thing with horseshoe crabs is that they are, uh, in a lot of ways, they're kind of, they remind me a bit of sea turtles. Uh, in as much as both of them predominantly spend most of their lives in the sea, but they have this key period in their life where they need to come up onto beaches to reproduce. Um, and the the sort of human impacts that you mentioned are, like, we're taking away the beaches, and that obviously is, is a big problem for them. But we're, start, we're starting to realise that, and we're starting to... Um, find ways to at least in in the uh, east coast of north america find ways to sort of use those beaches and stop things like coastal erosion without uh, building big blocks that mean that they can't get up onto the beaches Uh, but there are other problems Um, the two main ones probably are sea level rise and uh temperature change And so with sea level rise, we're starting to see uh, higher tides that are causing mass strandings where uh, large numbers of horseshoe crabs are being pushed beyond the beaches. And they're not super great when they're in the surf, they're sort of being tumbled around a lot, they don't have a lot of control. Um, And they're getting pushed into marshes and then they get stuck and they can't get back out. And it's possible that you could lose generations of horseshoe crabs that way. if they have a bad tide, and then it takes a long time for them to recover because these things can live for uh, a decade or more. Uh, And they only start reproducing after a number of years.
0: I can't remember which species it was, but I understand there's another species that lays its eggs where the eggs' uh, sex is determined by the temperature, so the ones on top that are maybe a little bit warmer baked by the sun are supposed to be one sex, and the ones below where it's cooler in the sand are another. Um, which is something that you don't think about. And if the temperatures overall are rising, then they all become the same sex. Is there any similar thing that's happening to the eggs of horseshoe crabs that are causing problems?
1: I'm not sure if there's any research been done as to how uh, temperature affects the overall development of horseshoe crabs, but we do know that it tends to impact the speed at which they develop quite strongly. Uh, And so one problem that I don't think has been really thought about in detail is that the larvae require different food sources to the adults and so if you increase the temperature and they emerge earlier there is the risk that whatever their food source is is not going to be as abundant or it's not going to be there at all
0: could you tell me a bit about your own research that you're working on now
1: okay um i i'm doing a diverse set of things right now um (laughs) I, uh, I'm working, I'm doing more work on horseshoe crabs. I'm actually, um, very interested in looking at how we can track changes in their development through time. Um, there's this process called heterochrony, uh, whereby you can see new morphologies developing through either speeding up or slowing down the development of an organism. Mm -hmm. And so I'm very interested in seeing how these weird shapes we see amongst freshwater horseshoe crabs have developed. Uh, and it's possible that it's because of changes to the rate of their development because they are living spending more time in what is actually characteristically a stressful environment for horseshoe crabs where it's maybe slightly cooler and also there's slightly um uh, there's less less salt water than they ideally want although they can live for periods of time um, mm-hmm. in it um i'm also continuing uh, my work with uh, europe trids looking at the same sort of thing i i i I'm interested in using Eryptrids to uh, track how these Ordovician and Devonian mass extinctions have impacted sort of marine ecosystems. Uh, And I just got back from field work in the uh, eastern parts of of West Virginia, um, looking at communities um, in the Devonian and sort of looking at how this mass extinction has impacted uh, marine ecosystems as a whole rather than just focusing on uh, one or two groups like I have been doing. Mm -hmm.
0: Very cool. Okay. Is there anything else that you can think of that we haven't covered?
1: Um, Not much. There's one odd little factoid um, that uh, I worked on a paper with an undergraduate student a couple of years ago where we noticed that I think predominantly photographers had realized that if you shine a UV light on a horseshoe crab, it sort of fluoresces this greeny blue. (laughs) Um, This is something that they share with scorpions, which they are distantly related to and it's because they're taking up um, these fluorescent compounds from their blood and putting it in their uh, exoskeleton. And so we wanted to document this scientifically and we did. And so if you ever see a horseshoe crab and have a UV light to hand and it's dark, (laughs) uh, you can make them glow in the dark, which is incredibly cool.
0: Is Is that any sort of adaptation that might help them or is it just a sort of weird coincidence?
1: So uh, we've got some theories, but they're mostly sort of spitballing. Um, <laughs> they uh, they rely on sort of the lunar cycle for their reproduction, um, and they have very good um, sort of UV um, sensitivity in their eyes. Uh, and so it could be something to do with tracking cycles of the moon, or it could just be a way that they see each other um, in the water it's often very murky and muddy Mm -hmm. sort of where they live Um, and so if they're able to pick up sort of flashes of the ultraviolet as the sun or the moon hits their exoskeleton that could allow them to sort of see each other and so that's a possibility as well
0: that's pretty cool thank you so much for joining us this has been really interesting it's just fascinating to think about Earth's history from so many millions of years ago and how quickly it's changing today.
1: Yes, no, it's it's always interesting to sort of dive into a group that we think we know really well and then realize how much the, they've sort of been doing different things in the past.
0: Well, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, this has been Mary Parker with Sounds of Science, joined by James Lamsdell.